As you're getting settled in, if you would, turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel according to John. Who was the greatest person to ever live? There are certainly many ways that we could go about answering this question, but most likely we would want to pick a, ber- a person based off of their impact or their role in history. Whether it be people who have impacted us personally in significant ways, a teacher, or a coach, parent, family member, or a person who has done the most social good. Well, if we have that criterion in mind, we'd surely all answer that Jesus was the greatest person to ever live. He has done the most good to us and to society as a whole. But who would Jesus say was the greatest person to ever live? Well, we don't have to guess. We actually have the answer recorded for us in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus tells us that John the Baptist was the greatest person to ever live. He says that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I don't know about you, but I would suppose that that is the highest compliment that a human being can receive. The one through whom all things were made is saying that you're the greatest ever born of a woman. Why would Jesus say this? John the Baptist played a pivotal role in the unfolding of the gospel narrative as he was the forerunner of our Lord. And as we will learn today, he was a witness pointing to the Christ. I want us to be reminded here at the beginning of John's purpose in writing his gospel that the purpose is to write an account of Jesus' life with the focus on the reader believing that Jesus is the Son of God. But not just believing, but in believing, having eternal life. John accomplishes this goal by calling multiple witnesses to the witness stand in a sort of courtroom fashion to testify to the deity of one Jesus of Nazareth. We'll find the word witness and sign over and over and over again through John's Gospel. Why? Because these are his witnesses that he's calling forth for us to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In our text this morning, we're going to be introduced to the first witness, who is John the Baptist, who came to bear witness about the true light who is coming into the world. And I will confess up until about three minutes ago, I was contemplating whether or not to make this three different sermons, verses 6 through 13, because there is so much here. Verses 6 through 8 are going to focus on John the Baptist and his introduction. So we will try as we might to fit it all in one sermon today. Let's stand together. I hope you're there in the Gospel of John. We're going to read John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. This is the word of the living God. There was a man 
sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, we need your help in this hour. I need your help to proclaim your word, to preach faithfully and accurately and clearly. Lord, and everyone who is here needs your help to hear and to receive and to see and believe. I pray that you would um, help us in those ways today and that Christ would be glorified among us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So as you can see, we have the introduction of John the Baptist. We have a mention of the incarnation. We have talk of the new birth. We have talk of adoption. This passage is just overflowing with themes and important things to touch on. So this morning, we're going to do our best to cover all of it because it all flows together. John's gospel has a prologue. If you notice, and probably in your Bible, verses 1 through 18 seem to be one unit. There's not another paragraph heading until you look at verse 19. Most of your Bibles are probably that way. And that's because verses 1 through 18, it is a prologue to John's gospel. It's a time where he is introducing us to important themes and important people, important words that he's going to revisit again and again throughout this gospel. The last time that we were together, we looked at the opening of the prologue, which was verses 1 through 5, and as you remember, that was all focused on the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There he's introducing us to the, the main subject of his gospel, who of course is Jesus Christ. He calls Jesus the Word, the life, the light. And these terms are used to draw attention our attention to the deity of Jesus Christ, that he wasn't just a great man, he wasn't just a great prophet or a great teacher, but he was God in the flesh, that he is the Son of God. And as I said, these terms also are introducing major themes of, of light and of life that we will be revisiting throughout our time in John. But in those verses, we were taken back to eternity past, from before Genesis 1-1, talking about high and lofty things. And then as you probably noticed, there seems to be a quick change in focus in verse 6. We're talking about eternity past and high and lofty Christology in verses 1-5. through five, And then verse 6, there was a man. There was a man. 
We're talking about deity, and then we change to contrast and talk about that which is of the dust, that which is created. John was a man. Surely John is purposefully contrasting here to remind us that John the baptizer was just a man. Though Jesus even pays him the high compliment of saying that he is the greatest man ever born of a woman, guess what John is showing us? He's still just a man. This is an important observation for us to make because it's going to help ground the understanding of the reader in what else the author of this gospel has to say about the baptizer. When we get to verse 19, we're going to get to the testimony of John the Baptist. And we're going to see the people were asking who he was. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? John answers, no, 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 no. Who are you then? I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Though John was just a man, he was, however, sent from God. Now, there is a sense in which everyone who serves and everyone has been sent from God in, in one way, shape, form, or fashion. But what John has in mind here is something very unique. There is a, a very unique way in which John the baptizer was sent. Let us be reminded that Jesus was not the only one whose coming was prophesied in the Old Testament. John's was as well. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. If you look down at verse 23, you'll notice that he is quoting from Isaiah. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, as the prophet Isaiah said. But John was also foretold by a heavenly visitor in Luke. We have the account of how Zechariah and Elizabeth come to find out that they will have a child. The angel Gabriel, who tells us in that narrative that he stands in the presence of God, that he has come down with a message to let Zechariah know that God has heard his prayer. Prayer for what? For Elizabeth to conceive. You see, they were barren. They were likely in their 80s. Now that's quite a miraculous birth now, isn't it? But you know what that also is, is faithfulness in prayer. Still in his 80s, praying, Lord, please grant life. Please grant that my wife could conceive. Surely that was his prayer. And the Lord heard his prayer. And he lets Zechariah know in terms that Zechariah as a priest would certainly understand that Elizabeth is not just going to give birth. God heard your prayer. She's going to conceive. But this isn't going to be just any child. This is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. That's back in Luke chapter 1, if you'd like to read more about it, because we could spend the rest of our time there. But it is a fascinating account of miraculous events. We see that John the Baptist was a man who was sent from God in a unique way, in that he was prophesied of by the Old Testament prophets. He was foretold by a messenger from God, Gabriel, and he was miraculously born to a barren couple in their 80s. So the question has to be asked, why? 
Why is God going through such great lengths to bring this person to the, to the earth? Why? Why is he prophesied of in the Old Testament? Why is he granting a prayer to a couple that has been barren, that's in their 80s? Why? It's because of what John came to do, of course. Verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. And here we are introduced to the ministry of John the Baptist. John's ministry was to be a witness and to bear witness about the light. And what does the end of verse 7 say? That all might believe through him. I would say that's a pretty important role, wouldn't you? He's the forerunner of the Messiah, pointing to the Messiah so that all would believe through him. The author wants this to be clear so you can see verse 8. He emphasizes it by restating it. Except for there's a very important thing that he says. He was not the light. John is just pointing to the light, but he was not the light. We'll revisit that in a moment. But in John introducing the baptizer so early on in his gospel, and then specifying the baptizer's role in the narrative, he's kind of giving us a heads up that anytime we see John the Baptist in the rest of this gospel, what's John the Baptist going to be doing? He's going to be witnessing to the light. That means that John's focus in John the Evangelist in bringing in John the Baptist, is to say, this is going to be a witness. I'm not just wanting to tell you a story about John's life. I want you to see how particularly how the baptizer witnessed to Christ. John the Baptist knew this too. He knew that this was the ministry that he was given. He didn't fancy himself a gifted preacher who could make a platform for himself with the right marketing. I mean, this guy was in the wilderness. Who wants to go see a preacher in the wilderness? Not very many people. He wasn't a stylish individual either. We're told in Matthew's Gospel that his clothing was made of camel's hair. Can't imagine that was very appealing to look at. To top it off, he... He ate locusts and honey. So he's not with the trendy diets that everybody is, well, I don't know, maybe. Maybe that's the new thing. Locust and honey diet. I'm on the John the Baptist diet. If I ever say that, then you all pray for me very hard. He also called everyone to repentance, didn't he? If John the Baptist was interested in building for himself a platform, surely he would have chosen a nicer message at one point, the Pharisees, who were well-respected and well-to-do in the community, they come to him, and what does he say? Welcome, Pharisees, please have a seat on the front row. No, you know what he says is, you brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? John the Baptist was not interested in the world's things or popularity. Why? Because he had a laser focus on what he was here to do. He was here to bear witness about the light, and that's all he cared about. And he was content with that being the extent of his ministry. We see that evidenced 
fully in John chapter 3, where we find an account of his disciples coming to him and they're saying, Rabbi, the one that you told us about, everyone's running out to him. All of them are going to see him to be baptized. In other words, I think we're going to go out of business. Everyone's leaving. They're going to the other guy. Aren't you worried? Shouldn't we try to go get them back? John the Baptist doesn't panic. He doesn't freak out. He doesn't say, we need to go back to the drawing board and try to be more creative in in an attempt to to bring people in. Maybe I should trade out my camel's hair for something a little bit nicer. Maybe I can try eating a few fewer locusts. He doesn't say anything like that, does he? What does he say? You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. I am not the light. But I have been sent before him. He must increase. I must decrease. And decrease he did as he does not appear again in John's gospel. He's only referenced. John the Baptist faithfully gave himself not to self-promotion but to selfless proclamation He served the Lord faithfully. And when his ministry was over, what did he say? He must increase, I must decrease. Would that more servants of God had this attitude. Would that I would have this attitude. Serving God is not about me. It's entirely about doing what God has called you to do for as long as God has called you to do it. We could certainly spend at least the rest of our time together, if not more, just examining the Baptist's ministry. We could extract valuable wisdom and principles of ministry, but I want to suffice it to say that the goal of ministry is to bear witness to the light. It's not to be the light. Verse 8, he was not the light. He was here to bear witness about the light. That is the whole focus of gospel ministry, is pointing people to the light. And that's it. And it's nothing beyond that. And it's not, well, it would be great if, if I had a bigger platform or if people wanted my autograph, or if people were interested in what I had to say, the whole ministry of a gospel minister is to bear witness about the light. It's not to even fill a church. It's not to tell people how wonderful they are, pat them on the back as they come on Sunday morning. A minister's job is not to grow his brand, expand his influence, wear trendier clothing, or any of the other silly games the preachers play today. The minister's role is to simply bear witness about the light, but that's not an end in and of itself, now is it? It is so that people might be saved. He's not called to be the light himself. What does that mean for us? as it pertains to Flatland Bible Church. I am not the star of the show. You don't come to see me. You don't come to see a preacher man. You come to hear someone bear witness about the light. And listen, the day that that stops, the day that you're a part of a church, 
where the minister is not focused on bearing witness about the light, but being the light, you go find another one. And you go find a church where the minister cares about preaching about the light and pointing you to the light because that's what matters most. Something that we need to bear in mind about a witness is that when a witness is called to the witness stand, they're not there to give testimony about their opinion. They are there to bear witness to objective truth. The average witness is not called to speculate or to offer their thoughts on the matter. They are called to bear witness to what they know to be true. Church, how much more is that the truth about gospel proclamation? That it's not to bear bearing witness is not a 45-minute TED Talk. Bearing witness is, here is what the truth is. Here is what I know to be true, that I know, that I know, that I know to be true. That's what a witness does. That's why they're called to the stand. It's to simply say, here is what I know to be true, and I know it is to be true, because this is what God has said in His Word. Anything else is storytelling, it's motivational speaking, it's lecturing, but it's not being a faithful witness to the light. I want to stop and think of that for just a second. A witness to the light? Would you need anyone to stand up right now and tell you, hey, the lights are on. The lights are on. If we walked outside, the sun is shining right now. If we walked outside, would any of you need me to tell you the sun is out and it's bright out here? No, you wouldn't. My son can't hold his head up yet, but even he knows when lights are on. I took him outside. I'm a new parent, so forgive me. I took him outside not thinking about how bright it was. I'm a new parent. And I turned him directly into the sun. I'm a new parent. And immediately, what did Jonah do? Do you know why? Because he saw the light. I didn't have to say, look, son, the sun. I'm not that new of a parent. He knew the light was on. But who doesn't know when the light is on? The blind, the dead. Church, what does that say about the world that the light needed a witness? That somebody had to come and say, here is the light. What does that say about the world? That we're blind. That we're dead in our sin. That we can't see. We don't know what the light is. This is an indictment on all of humanity that a witness had to be sent to bear witness about the light. And why? Because we are spiritually blind without the sovereign working of the Spirit of God in our hearts opening our eyes. That is the case of every single person who's ever been born. Unless the Spirit of God works in their heart. Let's look at verse 9. 
the coming of the light, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John calls the light the true light. It's a word that we're likely to overlook if we're reading too quickly or not reading carefully. But it's a critical distinction that John is making here. He's not just saying the light, but the true light. The word true here is used in the sense of of real or genuine. The word is used in chapter 4 to speak of true worshipers. The true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. Chapter 6, Jesus speaks of himself as the true bread from heaven. And he calls himself the true vine in chapter 15. The word true is referencing something from the Old Testament that served as a shadow of something. There is a terminology, type and antitype. It means that something in the Old Testament was pointing to something that's fulfilled in the New Testament. In other words, in Jesus calling himself the true bread from heaven, he is saying that when you saw the Israelites given manna, where did manna come from? It wasn't wonder bread. Manna came from heaven. God miraculously sent sustenance to his people in the desert and it fell from heaven. And Jesus is saying, that was just a picture of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven to satisfy the needs of his people. It doesn't mean that manna wasn't bread. The Israelites ate it and it filled them. It means that Jesus is the ultimate reality. The manna was a shadow of what was to come and that's what is meant here. That Jesus is the true light. Jews at the time would know that the Torah or the law, that the law gives light. Psalm 119, your word is a what unto my feet? A lamp. And it's a what unto my path? A light. And again, the unfolding of your words gives light. So John is showing us that the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate reality of that light that was given to us by the law was coming into the world. Jesus wasn't another prophet. He was the one prophesied of. Jesus wasn't just another rabbi. He was the ultimate teacher. Jesus wasn't another interpreter of the law. He came to fulfill the law. We could take this a step further and say that in John calling him light, he is also saying that Jesus is the ultimate realization of what light even is. That Jesus doesn't reflect light. He doesn't, he's not like a lamp that needs to be turned on. He is light. He is the ultimate reality of light. There are others that pretend to be light. There are other pretend lights. But Paul tells us clearly in his second letter to the Corinthians that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You know what that means? You won't be able to tell. It will seem like Christianity to you. But John is saying the true light, the ultimate realization is Christ. Without Christ, there is no light. And that is true universally, as in in the universe. There is no light in the universe without Christ. And that is true for us spiritually, that there is no light of the hope of the gospel in the world without Christ. And that is true for us individually, that there is no light within us illuminating to us who God is without Christ. Christ is all of it. And he was coming into the world. Today we have different iterations of New Age thinking. People will say that we have divine light within us all. And we need to let our inner light shine. And we need to look for the inner light in other people. These are ideas that are not from Scripture, my friends. They are not from God. Without the true light, there is no light. And what is the opposite of light? There's not an in-between. There's not light and kind of a gray and then darkness. There is light and there is darkness. And without the true light, there is no light. No matter how convincing an argument a pagan or professing Christian can make. I want to make this point here because John says next of the true light that he gives light to everyone. This is a passage that's often used by false believers and pagans to support the idea that we all have light within us. We all have a divine inner light and as such we need to pursue inner illumination. We look inward to be illuminated to that which is divine. It's a lie. That's not of God. And that's not at all what John has in mind here. And we'll see that as we go on. But if you have the King James or the New King James, you might be noticing that verse 9 in your Bible reads totally differently. Where the ESV says that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The New King James and the King James They reorder the words to say that Christ gives light to every man who is coming into the world. This translation of the original certainly lends itself to the understanding that every man has inner light as the true light is given to them. But again, that can't possibly be what John has in mind as you continue to read the Gospel of John. Nor is it what the Scriptures teach. So what is John saying? John is pointing us to the incarnation. The true light was coming into the world and he identifies the true light as the one who gives light to everyone. Everyone doesn't mean every single people. It means everyone without distinction. Not just for the Jews anymore, but the Jews and the Gentiles. Not just for men, but for men and for women. That's what everyone means. We're talking about the incarnation. This is anticipating what we will come across in verse 14 where he says that the Word became flesh. That Christ, the one who was with God and was God already in the beginning, the Word, the life, the light, He was coming into the world. 
Jesus says it himself in chapter 16, that he came from the Father. So John is speaking here of Christ's incarnation. Christ tells us in chapter 8 that he is the light of the world. The meaning here, then, is twofold. That Christ is the light, as in he gives illumination to reveal the Father in the hearts of everyone who believes in him. And he also shines the light of truth in the world. Christ is the light in one sense that he shines the truth in the world. He's giving light to everyone. This is the light of truth from Christ. But in a more personal sense, he illumines in your heart who the Father is when you have been born again. This is what it is to be the light who gives light to everyone. When that light shines upon you, you either flee from the light because you love the darkness and you don't want your deeds to be exposed, as it says in chapter 3, or you see yourself for the wretched soul that you are and you come to the light to be cleansed. The rest of the passage that we will look at this morning It's going to help flesh that out some more. But now, for right now, let me ask you though, which one are you? Did you flee from the light? Do you flee from the light? Or do you come to the light exposing yourself for a wretched sinner like everyone else that you might be cleansed? Do you fear and flee because you don't want to be exposed as a sinner? for who you truly are? Or do you run happily to the light? When we have the true light, we will not walk in darkness. We will have the light of life. This true light was coming into the world in His incarnation. And He is the light to all people without distinction. No longer just the Jewish people. So surely then, surely this true light was greeted with the warmest of greetings. Right? Joy to the world, let earth receive her king. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. This is a tragic statement. The world was made through him. Do you see what he's saying? This is the true light. The true light's coming into the world. He gives light to everyone. He was in the world. The world was made through him. The world didn't even know him. The world was made through him. But it didn't know him. We have this idea that people who are lost in sin, people who are in darkness, that they are looking for God. That they're searching for God. This belief is so widely held that there was a whole church movement born from it. It's called the seeker-sensitive movement. You'd hear often of churches, even to this day, who want to be seeker-sensitive. So, because of this faulty belief that sinners dead in their sin are searching for God, churches tailor their service around unbelievers. They want people who are far from God to feel comfortable and at home and not challenged and not convicted. They don't want them to see the church as any different than all the other places they go. 
Beloved, if God himself stepped into creation, donning a body like ours, and the world did not know him then, how much more is that true today? We can try all of the tricks. We can get brighter lights and better music, better coffee. But none of this will make a person see Jesus as all-satisfying and all-glorious. John Piper points out how nobody has ever looked at someone walking to a Mercedes-Benz and say, wow, Jesus gave you that. Wow, Jesus gave you that. I want Jesus. But nobody has ever seen you walk to that Mercedes and then seen seen Christ as all-satisfying. That you don't need anything else. I don't need anything else. The world doesn't know him because it does not want to know him. This is another indictment upon mankind. Listen to verse chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. Why don't your friends want to come to Jesus? Why don't your unsaved family members want to come to Jesus? And why is our society so diametrically opposed to Jesus? It's not because they're on their own journey and they're trying to figure it out. It's because they love the darkness rather than the light. So it was with every person who has come to Christ before they came to Christ. You and I. Before he opened our eyes, that was true of us. That we hated the light and loved the darkness. This is why we do not lose heart, but continue to pray for the unsaved loved ones around us. And we proclaim the gospel to them, especially in our day and age. I want you to notice verses 6 through 8. God is sending a witness Did John come as a witness to the light and just stand in the wilderness and say, I'm just going to live a really good life here in the wilderness and take care of the wilderness and people are going to see my life and they're going to want to be saved? Is that what happened? That's not at all what happened. He tells us in verse 19, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. What does this mean? That we have this idea That people will see your life and you're so holy and godly that they will, by osmosis, upon being around you, hear the gospel and repent and believe in Jesus. That's not how it works. We must hear the gospel. Paul tells us in Romans, faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So then, if you have unsaved family members, which you do, because all of us do, if you have unsaved friends, which you do, because all of us do, unsaved co-workers, which you do, because all of us do, it's not going to happen just from your life. Make no mistake, your life must match. Of course. But it comes from speaking. Talking about the gospel again, especially in our day and age. I am sure that all of you have heard the news of Roe versus Wade potentially being overturned. Hallelujah. And I'm sure that you've heard also 
the full-throated anger of those in support of abortion since the story came out. Why? Because they're in darkness. Because they are in darkness. Beloved, let it be said that there is absolutely no conceivable way that you as a Christian or any other Christian can be anything but in full support of babies not being murdered in the womb. And this shouldn't even be a topic of discussion, but it is. There are Christians today who are trying to make a biblical case for abortion. We can't. And I know that this is an aside, but it's going on really hotly right now in the media. And we see that a world in darkness does not understand the light. But the light needs to speak into the darkness. We don't hide our beliefs over in the corner and say, I don't want people to be offended that I'm adamantly against abortion. We say happily and gladly, don't murder your baby. Don't murder your baby in the womb. It's a side note, I know it is. I want to also be clear that there is grace for anyone who has done that. There is grace to be cleansed and forgiven. God is merciful. That does not give us any room to do anything but be against what the darkness does. The reason why we see our own country's leaders and fellow citizens so angry about this, angry about not being able to murder their baby, is because they don't know the light. It's because they're in darkness as believers. The other side of the coin is not to resort to name-calling, but to all the more wholeheartedly bear witness to the light so that some might be saved. But Jesus also came to his own, and even they rejected him. What is this? This is a reference to the Jewish people. As you know, Jesus was a Jew. He was an Israelite, the true Israelite. The Jewish people have known of the coming Messiah. They have cherished the promises of the coming Messiah, even though many misunderstood what the prophecies meant. But here is the Messiah, the promised one of God, and they rejected him. It appears that John is calling our attention to the fact that the world doesn't know him. Others reject him. How tragic this is. The world was ignorant of who Jesus was. They were not anticipating the Messiah. But the Jews, they had no excuse. They had the promises, the covenants, the prophecies, the Torah, the national history of God working miracles among them, and yet they still did not receive him. So adamantly were they against the light that not only did they not receive him, they didn't even want him to live. They killed him. He came not to serve, but to be served. He came for the sick. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to reveal the Father and His own people rejected Him in the harshest terms. It is for this reason that some are ignorant of the light and some reject the light. That God had to send a witness to bear witness about the light. But as you know, not everyone rejected Him. Look at verse 12. 
the reception of the light, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Our English Bibles have the three-letter word, but. This word can be used as a term of negation, where you're negating everything that you just said, or it can be used to introduce a contrast. In this case, it's the latter. He is contrasting once again. While there were those who didn't know the light, and yet others who's, who, of his own heritage who actively rejected the light, there are others who did receive him and who did believe in his name. But I want you to notice the two words that we find in our Bibles. He says, to those who did receive and believe. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. They are very closely related words, but I would argue that you cannot have one without the other. You cannot receive Christ without believing in his name, and you cannot believe in his name without receiving him, that is, if you are to be saved. We will find the theme of belief all throughout the gospel. It comes up time and time again. At the end of chapter 2, people believed in his name, but they didn't receive him. Their belief proved unbelievable. John will show us people who have at times believed in the name of Jesus, but they're still not saved. And how can that be? Doesn't that seem to go against everything that we have grown up believing? It's because faith in Christ does not consist of merely believing in a set of facts about Jesus. You can listen to Christian music, you can go to church, you can read your Bible, you can say nice things about Jesus and still not be saved. Because it's possible to only believe a set of facts about Jesus. Faith in Christ is not just in facts. It's easy to believe that the historical person of Jesus walked the earth, that he did miracles, that he taught great things. But if you do not receive Christ as your own, my friend, you do not have salvation. John puts both of these terms with slightly different meanings here for a reason. The word receive in the Greek behind our English is often used by John in this gospel to get this to mean take or took. The word can carry the sense of taking hold of, acquiring, grasping, while belief is meaning to put one's trust in something. So what's the point? John is saying to all of those who received Christ by accepting that he is who he says he is, He is who he says he is. What he has said is true. He is Savior and Lord. They have accepted him. They have grasped him. They have taken hold of him and also believed that what he said is true. To those people, Christ gave the right to become children of God. It's not enough to merely profess Christ. You must possess Christ. It is not enough to merely comprehend truth about Christ. You must apprehend the truth about Christ. The reformers often gave the most helpful definition of saving faith. They said it involved three essential aspects. Knowledge, assent, and trust. 
You have to know something, become convinced of something, and trust in something. You come to know the truth about Jesus, to be convicted and convinced that it is true, and you put your trust in that truth. That, my friends, is saving faith. But many times we can stop at step one or step two, but we never trust in Jesus for what? For salvation, for the cleansing of our sins. Why? Because that would require that I own my sin. Then I know I stand before him a guilty, wretched sinner. People don't want that, so you can't get to trusting in Jesus without ever being convinced of the truth, both about who he is and who he says you are. This is demonstrated well by Peter in chapter 6. People are coming to Jesus. Jesus basically sends the masses away. He says, unless You eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have no part with me. People say, this is crazy. I've never heard something like this. And so they leave. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, do you want to leave too? What does Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? There's nowhere else to even go. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you see knowledge, assent, and trust all at play there? They know a set of facts and they trust Him as demonstrated by staying with Him and walking with Him. This verse also demonstrates for us man's responsibility in salvation. That you are personally responsible to receive Christ and believe in his name. Now, has this happened in your life? Have you come to know and believe that Jesus is the Christ? Have you trusted in him and him alone? Not your works, not sacraments, not ordinances, but Christ alone for your salvation, friend, if you have it. I urge you not to trust a second longer in your own good works, but to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have, John points out to us that the defining difference between those who believe and those who do not is the sovereign and supernatural work of God in their hearts. Verse 13. These people were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is anticipating the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3 when Jesus tells him that he must be born again. I'd like to point out that Jesus is saying that people become children of God. We have the idea that everybody is a child of God. No, my friend. Scripture tells us that there are children of Satan and there are children of God. That ought to jar us. What do you mean? There are children of wrath and there are children of God. Who are the children of God? Those who have been born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. What is he saying? Just because you're a human does not mean you are a child of God. You must be born 
again, as it has been said many times. If you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. We have this idea that I can repent and believe whenever I want. But what does he say? These people are born not of blood, not of your heritage. You can't be born into Christianity, nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man. What does that mean? Not of the will of man, not of your own choosing or your own doing. It is being born of God. That is a sovereign and supernatural working of God in the heart. It is not just those who are born into the world, but those who have been born again. We recently went through a series on the doctrines of grace, so this concept should be fairly fresh in your mind. The salvation is a sovereign work of God, meaning that He's the one who elects His people unto salvation. And it's also supernatural because God has to do the work. We can conf- confidently say that verse 12 only happens if verse 13 has happened. And evidence that verse 13 has happened is verse 12 happening. What does that mean? Those who believe and receive Jesus only do it because they have been born of God. And the evidence that you have been born of God is that you have received and believed in Jesus Christ. Boy, that eliminates pride, doesn't it? I didn't do it. Jesus did it all. And thank God that he did. Let's stand. I want to point something out. Because we're often so fast and so quick to talk about justification and focus on justification. Meaning that you've been made right before the eyes of God. And that is good. We should. That is an important doctrine for us to cherish. But so often we don't ever move on to the doctrine of adoption. That you've been made a child of God. You don't just stand before In Christ, you don't just stand before God forgiven of your sins. You stand before Him as a son or daughter. He's moved you from being a child of wrath, a child of Satan. That was you. And He's made you His own child. You have a seat at the table now. You have a Father in heaven who will never fail you. You have a Father who provides for you. When you get the paycheck, that's not your hard work primarily. It's your Father providing for you. When you wake up tomorrow, if you're granted tomorrow, and you still believe in Jesus, that's your Father keeping you. Because you're a child of God now. The reason why you don't abandon the faith is not because you're smarter or more religious or spiritual. It's because you're in the hands of your father. And you're his child. So dear ones, when you sin, be reminded that you're sinning against your father. He doesn't rush to condemn you 
to cast you off to hell or regret adopting you. But he has accounted for every one of your failings. Every one. Is this a license to sin? Of course not. It's a license to run closer to the Father. But when you sin, because you will, we all do, you can be reminded, I'm a child of God, and I have grieved the heart of my Father. Yes, but I still belong to him. Why? Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He's purchased me and cleansed me and made me his own. With that in mind, we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning.